Welcome to the To Read List. I'm Bailey, and this is a podcast where I attempt to get through the 132 unread books on my shelf. With me, as always, is my friend Toby. Hey. My brother Andrew. Yo. And my husband Dylan's the sound recordist. Yo. Yo. <laughs> Haunted yo. I just finished reading the book for the podcast, and it's, you know, a horror book, so everything is creepy. Ooh. Oh. Takes a lot to be creepy at 8.57 in the morning. I know. Mm. We're really coming in under the wire, guys. Yeah, I'll say real quick, I um, guys, if you're a real Pedro, this is some BTS for you. Usually, I will finish my book, you know, somewhat ahead of time, unlike Bailey Shade, um, and I will post, <laughs> I'll post my Goodreads review of it just because I want to do it. I want to get it over with. But this time, I finished the book like a week ago, and I have withheld my review from mm. everyone, but especially Bailey, because she always looks. So they don't even know. That's why I was so shocked, Toby, because you're like, I already finished the book. I'm ready to record whenever. And I was like, you have? It's not on Goodreads. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Can you I know? make a confession? I yeah. also have been like actively checking Goodreads to see if Toby's posted his review on this <laughs> yet. <laughs> so you got me too this time, not just Bailey. I thought you were about to say a confession. I've also been reading Infinite Jest. That would be a really good <laughs> no. yeah, I thought you were going to say that too. <laughs> no, no, that would be crazy. Though I did read Bailey's book. Ooh. Oh. That just reminds me of a Amazing. really cute thing Dylan did. Can I share? What? I guess. Oh, no. One time, <laughs> when Dylan and I were still dating, it was right after Fault in Our Stars came out, and I was trying to get him to read it, and he's like, I'm not reading that dumb book. I'm like, okay. No. And then I was like, okay, well, let's go see the movie when it came out. And he's like, fine, I guess so. I like movies. And then as we get there, on the way, on the walk there, he's like, do you think they're going to get Hazel right? And I'm like, what? And he's like, just kidding. I read the book. Uh, <laughs> wow, fake out. It was a really good fake out. No. Classic Dylan fake out. And that's when you knew you were dating a liar. This is this is how I remember it. I'm sure that you said it was a dumb, stupid YA book. Is that I, what you said? No, I did not say that. <laughs> anyway, Dylan can be cute. Well, I know we have a lot to get through this episode, what with Infinite Jest and a book two of us have read. However, I do want to know, anybody got shame this week? Who's to say if I do? I do not have shame. Um, I finished two books, so bonus. Wow. I didn't ask if you had pride. Okay, well, I have pride. I, I want to know. I, I want to know <laughs> if he really loves me. I want to know. Um, I read, if I read Grady Hendrix, I did. I read How to Sell cool. a Haunted House. I read it very quickly. And? It was excellent. As always, Grady can't miss. <laughs> there were some very gross parts. There's a very creepy villain, I will say. It's, I'm excited to see it if they ever make the movie. And he always just hits like this perfect balance between scary, funny, and like poignant. And he really does that in this one. And then the other one I read yesterday, I did a really cool thing. Don't be jealous. I flew to Las Vegas, <laughs> um, which was a 38 minute flight. What? Yeah. And I played um, Pokemon Go all day because it was a very special event in Las Vegas. And then I flew oh. back that night. But while I was there, you know, as you're searching for Pokemon, you know, you can listen to stuff. So I read an audiobook. <laughs> I read... <laughs> This is the most Bailey day I could imagine. It was pretty great. <laughs> Flying to a Pokemon Go event and listening to an audiobook while you do it. <laughs> it was eight hours of Pokemon. Um, and I got wow. a few shinies and I read Bad Astronauts by Grady Hendrix, which is more of a novella. I don't think it's hor- horrifying at all. It's more just a story of no, it... a, a bunch of ragtag um, South Carolina good old boys who decide to create a rocket and go into space. I was telling Bailey because I read it earlier. It's basically Andy Weir. It's Andy Weir. It's basically Andy Weir, mm. but like a little more crass. Now, Bailey, um, yes. we all know what a book by Grady Hendrix is, but could you explain to the audience what a shiny is? <laughs> shiny is special Pokemon. It's very rare and has very That's special a colors. Vague description. Okay. Okay. A specially colored Pokemon. So, Got like, it. for example, a Charizard is normally like an orange color, but a shiny is black. Very exciting. Very rare. Mm. Enough about Pokemon. Did any of you guys have shame? I have some shame, but Ah. it's mitigated. Because uh, these massy kids always want to mitigate their shame. Well, okay. As I... So uh, look over here. Look over here. First, I'll let me say <laughs> I have read 13 books this year. I am eight books ahead of schedule, according to Goodreads. So I can have no shame. Um, but <laughs> in terms of books I've purchased, 
Um, I did buy a copy of The Only Good Indians, which I read, so check. Mm -hmm. I also bought the third Shadow and Bone book, which I've been meaning to read, which is called Ruin and Rising. I finally have a copy of that, so I can finally read the next one. And then... I also bought a book called Demon Copperhead by Barbara Kingsolver, a hot release yeah. from last year, Ooh. which I guess is my only true shame of the week. <laughs> that looks good. Isn't that like a retelling of David Copperfield, right? I know very little about it. Here's what happened. <laughs> I went into a bookstore looking for a copy of The Only Good Indians. They did not have it, but I talked with the cashier a bunch and I was the only person in the store. So you felt you had so to buy something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I had heard this book was good. And I like Barbara Kingsolver uh, as established on the podcast in the past. So I was like, eh, I'll go for it. And uh, so I know very little about it. But I mean, based on the title, it sounds like you're probably right. And it's got great reviews. Yeah. I only know that because it was on uh, the Audible account that I leech off of Dylan's family. And uh, I was like, Demon Copperhead, what's that? And I Googled it. So, yes, it is loosely an adaptation of David Copperfield, apparently. We all leech off that Audible account. Yeah. Yeah, that's the major reason why I'm ahead of my reading goal at all. And you know why I don't feel bad? Because... Suck it, Daddy Amazon. <laughs> <laughs> wow, this podcast is getting wild. Okay, guys. Well, speaking of demon copperheads, it's time to talk about <laughs> David Custer Wallace. I don't know what that means. Do you know what that means? No. Um, Toby, you know what? It's, you're not far off. <laughs> did you read a book this week that you want to brag about? I I did read a book this last month and a half. Indeed, I did. <laughs> Um, yeah, I read Infinite Jest by David Foster Wallace. D-F-W. Tennis, the the infinite game. I don't know. I've not read this book. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So here we go. Here's our log line. Clocking in at a brisk 1,079 pages, including over 100 pages of the infamous footnotes, David Foster Wallace's infinite jest careens through a multitude of settings, characters, and plots, managing to be at various times a screwball comedy, a drug-laced horror story, a coming-of-age tale of looming addiction, a political farce, a side-eye towards American culture in general, and, perhaps most clearly, pretty misogynist. Yay! Ooh, and that is the landing stuck. <laughs> there we go. Wow. Um, continuing my trend with getting a little, a uh, little preview of what I think of the book in the summary. I'm just curious at what point you realized how misogynist it was, and then how disheartened you were about having to read a thousand more pages. <laughs> <laughs> well, you'll uh, you will discover that exact point, um, and maybe I'm not very proud of it. Here we go. Um, so, a quick summary of this book, the plot, will leave out a lot, um, <laughs> both because there's too much in this book to summarize, and also because a big part of the reading experience is figuring out what the heck is going on. That's like part of the experience. Um, but in short, most of its action takes place in two locations, a high-end children's tennis academy run by a severely dysfunctional family, and a halfway house for recovering addicts. Both of these are in the Boston area. The closest thing we have to a main character, Hal Incandesa. He's the youngest son of the family that built Enfield Tennis Academy, and he's attending it. He's like a senior in high school. He's about to graduate and perhaps go on to play pro tennis. We don't know. Um, But a major part of the book, about half of it really, is watching him slowly come to realize that he may have serious addiction issues. Um, There are many, many, many other sections and characters. Um, They range between a live-in worker and recovering addict at the aforementioned halfway house. There's also a plot that is a political farce, including a shady branch of the U.S. government called the Department of Unspecified Services and a group of Canadian terrorists made up exclusively of men in wheelchairs. Does that all make sense? Yeah, totally. Sure, of course. I mean, the words were English as far as I could tell. Do you need me to explain it to you? Like, I could do that. I just need to sit down. Give me like an hour. So, I mean, how the heck do you talk about this book? Um, I have mentioned it's tough because the first 200 pages are intentionally super confusing. I think Wallace is doing this intentionally, right? It's not an accident. He's not failing to write in a way that makes sense. He's just making it very, very difficult for you to engage and find your footing in this book. You kind of just have to wade through. And after around page 250, you get a couple clues that let things fall into place. But I think one way for me to kind of explain the tone of the book overall and to explain Foster Wallace's kind of humor that goes throughout this book is to explain this thing called subsidized time. Okay. (laughs) One of the most difficult things about reading this book is that it takes place in a near future 
or at least the near future from the perspective of 1996 when this book came out. Um, and in this near future, America has made a few uh, interesting choices after electing an unqualified lounge singer as president. Hmm. Um, you know, hmm. no, no comment. No comment. Uh, heard of it. Um, one of these decisions is to abandon the traditional dating system of years and go with what's called subsidized time. Basically, every year is sponsored by a company and all of America is forced to refer to that year as a company name. The majority of the action of the book takes place in the year of the Depend Adult Undergarment. So if you're writing down like the date on, on your homework, do you have to write out the year of the Depend Ar yep. Undergarment? Okay. Yeah. Each section is titled with like the date. So it'll be like a November 11th, comma, the year of the Depend Adult Undergarment. I see. Other years include the year of the Whopper, the year of the Tux Medicated Pad, the year of the Trial Size Dove Bar, the year of the Purdue Wonder Chicken, the year of the Whisper Quiet Maytag Dishmaster, etc., etc. The Whopper one seems much easier to write down. I'm surprised it's not like bigger companies. Like, I'm surprised it's not the year of Burger King, but it's a specific product that they offer. Mm. Yeah. That's a good observation. Well, so not only is this like just a silly, funny joke on the surface, it's funny to name your year, basically like the year of the adult diaper. The system is kind of creepily plausible. Why not, after all, sell anything we possibly can in America and wring every penny out of any opportunity? And the joke only becomes funnier when you realize as the reader, there is no way to tell when things happen outside of the year that you're in. Because if they say the year of the trial size dove bar, you don't know whether that's before or after the year of the tux medicated pad. So the whole book is extremely difficult to tell when anything happens at all. Mm. It is. It's like a satire of America. It's a very clever idea. It's confusing, but then kind of rewarding when you eventually do sort of figure out the timeline, you know, 300 pages in. Um, and that is a kind of big indication of what it's like to read this book. Difficult, but often very, very funny and very clever. Okay. And that, I would say that is an aspect of Wallace at his best. Right, like when, when he's at his most admirable, and it's one of my main elves. Okay, our cat is named Wallace, and I thought you were talking about him for a second. I knew you were gonna say that. <laughs> I absolutely knew it. I'm gonna say Wallace a lot more, so sorry. Awesome. Um, my other elves, honestly, like Wallace's writing prowess is absolutely undeniable, almost unbelievable at sometimes. He has an incredible command of language, of flow and rhythm and tone. He can flip between laughable and the horrific at will. He's got a crazy keen eye towards what can make America such an empty feeling place to live from time to time. And all of these things really, really make Infinite Jest stand out. You can see why it was so famous when it came out. I was deeply touched, honestly, by the story of Hal Incandesa. I was really amused by the humor throughout the entire book. I thought it was truly very, very funny in many parts and adequately horrified by the book's absolutely nightmare-inducing final scene. So Ooh. despite other issues, <laughs> David Foster Wallace absolutely could write like a demon. So that intrigues me. Can I just read the final scene and not the rest of the book? Uh, if you want to have nightmares, you can. Go ahead. Mm, okay, okay. <laughs> I'm... I, I wouldn't call myself a queasy reader, but I shudder thinking of the final scene. And I, I hope there's a page out there that's read this book and can sympathize with me. So I will admit I was charmed by it. I got really, really into it. I thoroughly enjoyed it. It dragged here and there when Wallace went on a tear about the chemical composition of this or that drug for like 10 pages. Or there was yet another stream of consciousness section for 15 closely printed pages with no paragraph break. But... I liked it a lot. I was very impressed. I was very entertained. I was surprised at how readable it became once you got over the difficult beginning. However. Uh-oh. Uh-oh, guys. <laughs> Here it comes. <laughs> uh, I liked it so much that I ended up watching the film, The End of the Tour, starring Jesse Eisenberg as the journalist and author David Lipsky and Jason Siegel as David Foster Wallace. I assume you guys have seen it? Yes. 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 Okay. So if you haven't seen it, the movie covers the same action as Lipsky's book called Although Of Course You End Up Becoming Yourself, which he wrote about his experience of following David Foster Wallace around during the end of Wallace's publicity tour for Infinite Jest. And that was basically the, the high point of his fame and success. While I was watching the movie, I was struck by just how frat bro-y both characters could be, especially in their treatment and pursuit of women. 
These weird, uncomfortable comments kept coming out of Wallace's mouth. He had irrational and upsetting behaviors that were displayed in a way that was, I think, maybe even more telling than the filmmakers realized at the time. Toward the end of the movie, I found myself being less and less sympathetic towards Wallace and unable to look away from a growing distrust of him in general, honestly. Um, there's a great quote from Lipsky in the movie uh, that I'll paraphrase here. He says that reading David Foster Wallace is being David Foster Wallace, and that more than many authors, David Foster Wallace actually brings us into his own head, and especially with Infinite Jest, which is a very personal book for him, shows us what Wallace really thinks, which is, again, maybe more telling than he realized. Hmm. Then I did a little bit of my own research because I knew that David Foster Wallace had his issues with women in particular in the past. I wanted to make sure that I knew what I was talking about. Uh, and I was pretty disturbed. I would say very disturbed. Um, he, There's many, many details about his severely abusive relationship with the author and poet Mary Carr. There's many stories of him sleeping with his students and generally abusing his position as a professor. There's stories of him displaying predatory behavior towards female newcomers in the recovery community. The list goes on. In a post-MeToo light, this book comes off, honestly, as really, really hateful towards women. Um, in the book, as a woman, you're allowed to be gorgeous or heavily sexualized, someone's mother, hideous and ridiculous, or you can be a combination of those things if you want. Hmm. The thing about it, and I'm kind of embarrassed to admit it, is that the writing is so crazy strong, it's hard to tell. It, it's like he's like tossing off magic tricks around you all the time, like these amazing turns of phrase and jokes and you just you're kind of dazzled by the writing itself and it's only when you kind of step way way back from it and start to really think about why none of the female characters have any substance or reality to them at all or they're entirely hollow or their stereotypes are just poorly treated in every single way that you start to see the kind of rot that can run through the, the center of this book mm. so it's really tough honestly there are some powerful observations in this book, especially about addiction, depression, American culture. But the whole book is severely weakened by this misogyny that Wallace is clearly displaying and for such a brilliant man seems to not be aware that he's displaying. In the book, does it come from the characters or it's it's it sounds like it's nope. throughout? It's not like a character's perspective. Yes, it's true. Yeah, it's a good question. So, yeah, there's you know, sometimes it's like it with stuff like this. It's like characters acting in a misogynistic way. And that does happen in here. But this is pretty clearly like Wallace's attitude towards women. Gotcha. Yeah. It gets really thorny when you're talking about like art and artist, like separating the two. But mm -hmm. it sounds like in this case, it, there's some other books we were reading that it's like this is very clearly yeah. this person. <laughs> opinion right it's not like you know Nabokov who's like yep he's not Humbert Humbert that's yeah. a different person but this it's like oh no yeah, yeah. okay also to add on mm -hmm. End of Tour is a real good movie End of Tour is great yeah it is it's a good movie it's a very good movie I, I, I forgot to say that I, I really enjoyed it so should you read Infinite Jest I mean only you can decide yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like a step in a choose your own adventure do you read Infinite Jest and it puts your life in a very different turn to page 87 yeah <laughs> Um, there are things in Infinite Jest that will stay with me, honestly, and some of the writing is truly breathtaking. As Bailey was kind of talking about earlier, we don't have to only read or interact with things by perfect people, and it kind of freaks me out to say that on the internet, but I do think it's true. Um, as long as you don't allow Wallace to charm you with his incredibly gymnastic display of writing prowess, and you can kind of separate the good parts of him as a human being and a writer from the absolutely scummy parts, I actually think this book is worth reading, especially as a kind of time capsule from pre-9-11 America, which is a place that looks stranger and stranger as time goes on. So I will cautiously say, you know, engage with this book, as you will, it is incredibly impressive, but it's also written by a big old jerk. So I'll give it three stars. Ah. The longest three stars you've ever had to give. Do you think, Toby, if you hadn't have researched more about David Foster Wallace and you hadn't seen that movie, you would have given it more like four? Or it's just so pervasive that it would always... No. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. That's what I'm a little bit embarrassed to admit. If I hadn't done more research, I probably would have given it like a four or a five. Like... I'm me, right? Like mm -hmm. I'm a straight white dude who grew up, you know, in middle class America. I might be blind to certain things that other readers will see immediately. You mm -hmm. know, I'll, I'll admit that. But yeah, I, I was fooled. 
I was tricked by the amazing writing. So, yeah, I'm glad I did more research. Well, I was going to say, it's good that you did the research versus like, you know, that moment when you're recommending something to someone that you haven't seen since you were like a kid and then you watch oh, it yeah. together and they're like, oh, no. <laughs> oh, no, problematic. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm very glad I didn't come out swinging and be like, everyone needs to read Infinite Jest. <laughs> <laughs> well, OK. I'm dying to learn more about David Foster Wallace. Andrew, do you have any facts on the man, the myth, the problematic legend? I do. Um, DFW, DFW, Dallas-Fort Worth Airport. Yes, Ooh. I, I do. Uh, I just want to say on the outset that in my research, I also came across what Toby's talking about. I think we've covered it well enough. I don't really feel like it's in our podcast nature to delve down to the specific like things he did because it's, they're pretty despicable and I don't want to talk about them. Mm-hmm. But yep, agreed. please research those on your own time. So, David Foster Wallace was born on February 21st, 1962. That's, oh, that's the day before this comes out. So, happy belated birthday. (laughs) (laughs) He was born in Ithaca, New York, but he moved at a young age to Champaign-Urbana, Illinois, uh, and spent the rest of his childhood there. Both of his parents were professors. His father, James, uh, was at the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign, and his mother worked at Parkland College. He was, Mm. as Toby sort of talked about the autobiographical nature to a certain extent of Infinite Jest, a regionally ranked tennis player in his youth. Oh. Yep. The other fact I found out about his youth is that one of his sort of like rebellions as a kid, his parents were both atheists, and he went to church a bunch. Yeah. I was like, well, take that, dad. I'm going to go to a Mennonite service. Speaking of his dad, uh, that's pretty funny that his dad's name is James because the father figure in the Incandesa family, who's kind of a scumbag, is also named James. So pretty autobiographical here. Take that, dad. Oh, boy. Um, Wallace went on to attend Amherst College in Massachusetts, where he graduated summa cum laude with degrees in English and philosophy. He would. Sorry, I can just picture him in a philosophy class. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Continue. <laughs> yeah, no. Well, is summa second? No, magna oh, second. I yeah. always assumed magna was the good one. No, summa, I mean, like good. the summit, the top. Bailey, do you want to say it? Do I want to say I was Magna? How dare you, Dylan? (laughs) (laughs) But Bailey, to confirm, Suma's the good one, Magna's the bad one, right? I'm leaving. It's better better to get nothing than to get Magna. (laughs) Yeah, got it. Okay, cool, cool. Uh, While he was at college, he also sang with the Glee Club and wrote his senior philosophy thesis on modal logic, mathematics, and philosophy, which received an mm -hmm. academic award and recognition. However, his senior English thesis eventually became his first novel, which was called The Broom of the System, which was published in 1987, only two years after he graduated college. Wowza. Yeah. Uh, He also went on to attend the University of Arizona's creative writing program and a graduate program in philosophy at Harvard, though he didn't complete the studies at Harvard. His primary like side hustle or, you know, job um, while he was (laughs) writing was as a professor. Um, He was a professor for much of his life, uh, first at Emerson College in Boston and then at Illinois State University, which is, I believe, where he is during the events of the end of the tour. Um, That is correct. Though his final position was at Pomona College, um, where he was the first Roy E. Disney professor of creative writing, which was a position that uh, where he taught one or two students at a time and was given like the rest of the time to focus on his writing. Hmm. Yeah, it's like artist in residence. And then you get to hang out with two kids. (laughs) Yeah, two really good students. Yeah. Yeah. He started working on his second novel, Infinite Jest, heard of it, in 1991. (laughs) And it was published in 1996. I didn't learn a lot more about this, but apparently it went through a long process of like having excerpts of it published. Um, and so there was like mm-hmm. a lot of buzz about it going in, which I don't know is something that really happens much anymore. Like I feel like a novel comes out in total or not at all nowadays. Yeah, I feel like that's like a Dickensian way of publishing a book. I had no idea yeah. it was his second novel. I guess I always pictured yeah. it being the last one. Yeah. Well, it was also his last one that was published while he was alive. Oh, but he had short stories. I'm I'm skipping ahead. Well, you know what? You're, you're, why don't you just wait to hear? <laughs> to tell you. Bailey, Bailey, I think he also had essays. Uh, Consider the Lobster. You know that one? Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. so let's just throw out the rest of these facts. <laughs> um, Andrew's really coming in magna cum laude in this conversation, isn't he? <laughs> 
He worked extensively for various publications, <laughs> writing nonfiction and journalism. Some subjects covered include tennis, lobster festivals, the pornography industry, David Lynch, tornadoes, and John McCain's 2000 presidential run. Some of this work was published in collections such as A Supposedly Fun Thing I'll Never Do Again and Consider the Lobster. Some of his nonfiction has been criticized even by his friends as being implausible or at least partially invented. Jonathan Franzen's on record saying like, yeah, I just, he had to make up some of these quotations because this is too, like the situations are too perfect for what he's trying to say. Um, yeah. You know, take that for what you will. He can't defend himself. Um, but yeah. So just know that if you approach his, his nonfiction that those criticisms are out there. A 2005 address to the graduates of Kenyon College in Gambier, Ohio, was later published under the title This is Water. I mention that mostly because I almost went to Kenyon College. Oh, wow. You know who went to Kenyon College? Uh, Bill Watterson, the writer of oh. Calvin and Hobbes. Paul That's Newman. That's who I was going to say. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> Wallace married Karen L. Green, a painter, in 2004, and they remained married until his death in 2008. At the time of his death, Wallace was working on his third novel, uh, The Pale King, which would be published posthumously. He died by suicide after battling depression in 2008, as Toby sort of indicated also with his autobiographical um, nature of infinite jest. He struggled with addiction and depression for most of his life, going in and out of rehab, and it was a major feature of his life. He was memorialized all over the literary world, uh, and some of his eulogists, specifically at his NYU memorial service, included Don DeLillo, Zadie Smith, Jonathan Franzen, and George Saunders. A lot of his work has been adapted um, into various formats. Um, for example, uh, his short story collection, Brief Interviews with Hideous Men, has been a movie, an opera, and two different plays. Wow. I've read brief interviews with the hideous men, and I can't imagine how you could do any of those things with it, honestly. Well, it's, for so. whatever reason. I mean, Infinite Jest, there was like a 24-hour theater production of it at one point, but yeah. what seems to get adapted the most is brief interviews. And then a supposedly fun <laughs> thing I'll never do again. Some sections of that seem to get adapted a fair amount. Also a music video by the Decemberists. Yes. Yes. Well... I was about to say. Um, <laughs> We're really his, stepping on Andrew's facts. <laughs> <laughs> Y'all know a lot about DFW, I guess. Uh, his work has influenced the work of Mike Schur, uh, who created Parks and Recreation and The Good Place, and also directed a Decemberist video, which depicts the game from Infinite Jest. <laughs> and also uh, an episode of The Simpsons is loosely based on an article he wrote about a cruise ship, and he appears in the background, uh, wearing a tuxedo shirt and eating on the cruise ship. And a song by the 1975 also takes from mm. titles of the first line of Infinite Jest. We're so close to finishing our all the authors featured on The Simpsons checklist. Got a lot more to the go. The thing is, oh, we'll yeah. never get there because they keep adding more. <laughs> it's true. No. Apparently, Neil Gaiman has become like a recurring villain in The Simpsons now. I haven't been watching recently. <laughs> but oh, Wow. <laughs> Uh, we'll see if we ever talk about that. Anywho, uh, those are the facts I have for David Foster Wallace. Obviously, there's a lot more and a lot more. Uh, I don't want my facts to have come across too glowing about the man, um, but I did want to provide some context for his life. Nice. Those are excellent facts. I think that was very comprehensive. Good job. Magna cum laude. <laughs> Just if it makes you feel better, time. Bailey, I didn't get any honors at all at school. Uh, the way they did it was different. Did your essays not um, get any academic recognition? No, I received awards yeah. for my academic excellence. Thank you very much. However, they like you only got like two slots for honors per year for each program. Um, I could at one point drink twelve Keystone Lights at Chico, and uh, still function. So. <laughs> uh, well, that was Infinite Jest by David Foster Wallace. Three stars with reservations. <laughs> Three complicated stars. Three mm -hmm. complicated stars. Yes. Well, I think after all that, we're in the mood for something light and cheery and crisp and fun. <laughs> Bailey, you must have read a book too, right? Did you? I feel like you're enabling Bailey's I did read a book habit, Andrew. I had the had a good transition and then you backed out and it. gave Bailey the same thing. That's fine. <laughs> I, I did read a book. I read The Only Good Indians by Stephen Graham Jones. Um, mm. Elk, elk, elk. Elk, elk, elk. This is a very well-loved and celebrated horror novel that came out recently. As the title implies, um, this is a story about a group of Native Americans. They're living, you know, in modern-day Montana, I believe. Yes. Yes. The opening kind of has the vibes of, like, It by Stephen King, where it's there's these four friends, oh. and 
there's something that happened in their past that's now 10 years later coming back to haunt them. Oh, that is very it. Yes. Um, or haunt or hunt them. Dun, dun, dun. <gasps> I am going to go into very mild spoilers that happen within the first 50 pages and are implied by the cover of the book. But if you want to skip spoilers completely, uh, go to the end of the podcast. Okay. Is the thing that's hunting them an elk? Yes, it is, Toby. Oh, really? (laughs) Oh, wow. I was joking because there's an elk on the cover of this book. I haven't read this book, Pages. Well, the event that happened was um, these men got together and shot and killed nine elk they were not supposed to kill. Just kind of like shot into a group of a herd of elk. Um, And then they couldn't carry all of the bodies back. And so it was very wasteful. And other Mm -hmm. things happened within that event. It had a very much of a vibe of an Oregon Trail when they're like, you've shot too much. That was wasteful. Oh, yeah. You know, (laughs) you shot 200,000 pounds of buffalo. (laughs) I just remember it being very passive aggressive. Well, then they shouldn't give you that many shots. (laughs) So then now 10 years later, um, these men start to be hunted down by an elk. Um, And this elk is really. Yes. It's actually it's from Native American myth that it's the figure of the elk woman. So it's a woman slash elk. She's just an elk woman. Got it. It has popped up a few times in pop culture in the movie Hostiles and the show Reservation Dogs. They also ha- dra- mm. uh, have the deer woman appear. Yeah. And my understanding okay. is, you know, if you are kind to women and children, she's a very like loving figure, yes. fertility type figure. But if you are cruel to women and children, she becomes sort of an avenging angel and will stomp you to death. Um, cool. So that is the premise of this book. Um, And it's split up into different sections that loosely follow each of the four men. I'll start with the elves. I really loved this Mm. premise. I really loved the antagonist. Very creepy. I love reading about worlds and perspectives that I don't know so much about. So it was really interesting to get this perspective. I'll give you a quote that gives this sense. Okay, this is page two about a character that's getting a job from a white man. The foreman interviewing him had thick and wind-burned and sort of blonde, with a beard like a Brillo pad. When he'd reached across the table to shake Ricky's hand and look him in the eye, well, he did it. The modern world had fallen away for a long blink, and the two of them were standing in a canvas tent, the foreman in a cavalry jacket, and Ricky already had designs on that jacket's brass buttons, wasn't thinking at all of the paper on the table between them that he just made his mark on. So, like, pretty pretty clear there. Yeah. Nice bit of writing, too. Uh, And it gives you a sense of he's a great writer. Mm -hmm. Then there are some deaths that I thought maybe had connections to this theme as well, but I'm not going to get into that. So I will say that was incredibly effective. Um, There's also a passage that talks about the sin of writing in books that you borrow. So like if I borrowed Dylan's Uh. book and I wrote in it and then returned it, and I was like, yes, I see you, Stephen Graham Jones. Um, (laughs) And... I thought the characterization was strong. I understood all of the characters um, who are very complicated. And this theme of trying to get out of the reservation. um, At one point, they talk about the metaphor of two crabs trying to get out of a bucket, one pulling the other one down. So like as soon as a native person is about to get get out of the reservation, someone pulls them back down. They pull down the person closest to getting out. And I thought that was a very Mm. interesting idea. And I don't know if this is an elf or an orc, but it's very gory and viscerally obscene setting. There were lots of deaths of humans and animals that read, like, in contrast to Lapvona, felt very real and possible. Um, And (laughs) also, like, I would never have thought of dying in that way, and now I am, and it's very creepy. So, all of that I liked. I thought at first this is going to be a five-star. Everyone's talking about how wonderful it is, but ultimately there were some points that, that distanced me. A large part of it hinges on basketball. And I don't really engage with basketball. (laughs) Wow. So you're saying if you don't directly like something, you cannot like the book. I'm saying like, like, it's like Toby said, like a personal thing. Like for me, I was like, I don't have a lot of stakes. I don't understand what they're talking about with how they're throwing the ball. And anyway, so that kind of took me out of it. 
Oh, okay. I'm sorry. I've read this book, and if that's one of your orcs, that's amazing. I know. No, it's a silly orc. It's silly. The bigger orc is that because he's such an interesting writer, Stephen Graham Jones will switch perspectives, even sometimes within the same sentence. And so it took me sometimes several read-throughs of a chapter to understand exactly what happened, especially in the action moments. And I'm pretty sure that was purposeful because it's supposed to be like this melee of chaos. But there were sometimes I was like, wait, who's that? What's happening here? Who died? Who killed who? Mm. And that kind of distanced me. I wanted to be able to read through it quickly. And instead I had to engage with it. Ugh. So anyway, <laughs> <laughs> that brought it down for me. But ultimately, I really like this book. And I think if you like horror novels, you should definitely check it out because it's very I would say it's unique amongst horror novels. So I'm giving it four stars. But Andrew, tell me, what hmm. did you think? Um, well, I broadly agree with a lot of what you said. I think what I would take away, I'm not sure exactly what I would rate it, but I think that horror might not be my genre. So maybe I can raise my hand up for the people who were maybe too grossed out by things that happened. And <laughs> I found it a little... <laughs> maybe too unpleasant. That said, I agree that he's a great writer, though I would also amplify your orc where I was really confused by certain sections of this to the point where I thought maybe I was too dumb, which same, wasn't same, same. a great feeling. Yeah. But Andrew, you've had your academic papers praised. <laughs> I know. They patted me on the head and said, good boy. Um, <laughs> I recommend this book, especially if horror is something you like. I think that it's okay if you don't really like horror. And especially if you're like trying horror out for the first time, the like goriness and grittiness of this, I would say like upset me. Um, huh. And I think part of that is also like you're given protagonists and you're given an antagonist, but that's not always like super clear. Yeah. So bad things happen to a lot of people. And Graham Jones, I mean, I think to his credit and really blurs the line about who you think should have bad things happen to them. Yeah. And who you think is a hero, maybe. Yeah. And I will just interject. It, I read a fair amount of horror and this was grosser than most horror that I've read. But Andrew, mm -hmm. how do you feel about basketball? I love basketball yeah. and I actually really liked that section. <laughs> <laughs> I'm intrigued. I think I might read this one and see, see what I think about it. Andrew, you just gave your awesome review, but now it's time for you to tell us some facts about Stephen Graham Jones. Sure. You mean Stephen Graham Jones, the Jordan Peele of horror literature? Ooh. Ooh. What? That's what it says on the back of The Only Good Indians. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> So Stephen Graham Jones was born in 1972 in Midland, Texas. He's a Blackfoot Native American and is an enrolled member of the Blackfeet tribe of the Blackfeet Indian Reservation of Montana, which is where mm. um, this action takes place in this book, or a lot of the action takes place in this book. Um, he grew up in Texas and went on to receive his BA from Texas Tech and his MA from uh, the University of North Texas. He then attended Florida State University and received his PhD. Ooh. Dr. Stephen Graham Jones, the Jordan Peele of American literature. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. While studying at Florida State, he was introduced to an editor at Houghton Mifflin and uh, pitched an idea for a novel that he had not written yet. The editor, Jane Silver, liked the idea and uh, Jones wrote it as his dissertation. Uh, it hmm. became The Fast Red Road and was published in 2000. This was his first novel, but boy, howdy, it was not his last because <laughs> he is incredibly prolific. Um, according to the sexy geniuses at Wikipedia, he's published 22 books before he turned 50. And Whoa. Texas Tech, his alma mater, stores 31.5 linear feet of his writing in a special collection. <laughs> why, why do they store it that way? <laughs> yeah, I don't yeah. You know. I can't find the answers to every fact. It's like in Harry Potter when they're like, give me two feet of parchment on potions. It's like, that doesn't make any sense. Just write really big. I think the point is that he's written quite a bit. Whatever, Texas University. <laughs> Texas Tech. Texas Tech, excuse me. Yeah, go Red Raiders. Um, he has received many fellowships and awards for his work. Uh, most recently, the Ray Bradbury Prize for the Only Good Indians, as well as going back to back on the Bram Stoker Award. Ooh. And actually, it was uh, awarded for the Only Good Indians and Night of the Mannequins, which came out in the same year, in 2020. And My Heart is a Chainsaw in 2021 which also received that Bram Stoker Award. Dang. Uh, there's not that much about him on the internet, so the rest of the facts come from an interview specifically about the Only Good Indians with Ari Shapiro on All Things Considered on NPR. Our nemesis. Hmm. 
So Ari Shapiro says, Stephen Graham Jones writes horror novels, and his latest starts with a provocative reworking of an old saying. The title is The Only Good Indians. Stephen Graham Jones says, The Only Good Indians are dead Indians, from, you know, an ascribed quote from Teddy Roosevelt back in the 19th century. But it was kind of a bumper sticker that would have been on horses if horses had bumper stickers back then. Then Shapiro asks a very long question about why this title, and Jones says... (laughs) I wanted to interrogate what it means to even be a good Indian in 2020. You know, does it mean subscribing to the old ways? Does it mean adopting other ways? How do you navigate the world when success in one arena is failure in another? And turns out there's not a single way to be a good Indian. There are 7 million ways to be a good Indian. Hmm. Shapiro then asks, what made you want to center this around the spirit of an elk? Jones says, I think the reason elk matter to me, it's whenever I take an elk or I'm part of a hunting party that takes an elk, I feel like there's an ethical obligation to that animal to treat it with respect. And I feel that to every animal I might take out in the field, of course, but generally when we're out after an elk. And so, you know, if I were a rabbit hunter, maybe this book would be about a novel about rabbits, you know, but I mostly go after elk. So this turned out to be an elk novel. Hmm. Elk novel. Piero, sensing an opportunity, then says, Is any of this an exorcism of your own guilt for elk you've killed in your life and felt like you didn't do justice to? Oh, boy. Stop. Oh, my God. That's what I'm sensitive about. (laughs) A little bit, (laughs) yeah. In 2008, I moved from Texas to Colorado, and an elk I had got the previous year was I still had some of her meat in the freezer. And when I moved away, I had to go door to door to give elk away to my neighbors because I couldn't transport it up to Colorado. And Shapiro then interjects, this scene is exactly in the novel. Jones says, it totally (laughs) is. It is. (laughs) And Shapiro says, that's a direct, yeah, wow. (laughs) And Shapiro comes off as like kind of predatory in this interview. So this is a transcription of an audio interview that was not Mm -hmm. written, as you can tell from some of the more like colloquial sayings here. But yeah, yeah, yeah. it's definitely like a direct thing. And then Jones says, and I felt so guilty about that because I told her when I shot her that I'm sorry that this had to happen, but I'm going to make use of you. You're going to do good for me and my kids, you know. Um, So, yeah, there definitely is some autobiographical sense, at least in that part of the novel. Oh, yeah. Cool. Two more quick questions from this. Uh, Shapiro asks, among the various stories of native experience, what do you think a horror story adds to the mix? Jones says, you know, the marketplace or the critical establishment, they kind of want American Indian fiction or literature to stay close to what's considered the main trunk of literature, I guess, where we don't have to get to go out onto our own branches and play in science fiction and fantasy and horror. I think it's really important for us to run out on all the skinny branches we can and claim whatever we want. Shapiro follows up. That's cool. What is it about this particular skinny branch you think bears fruit that another branch might not? Jones answers, you know, for me, the slasher is a wonderful thing to believe in. Really, it's wish fulfillment. The spirit of vengeance rising to punish the guilty that presupposes a world in which evil is punished, which is to say it presupposes a fair world, and that's not a world we live in. But I really like to engage slashers because they let me believe in that world just for a little bit. What an optimistic way to consider slashers. Yeah, I guess so. Uh... He is currently the Ivana Baldwin Professor of English Literature at the University of Colorado Boulder, and expect more work from him soon, as My Heart is a Chainsaw was the first of a planned series called the Indian Lake Trilogy. Ooh. And that is Stephen Graham Jones. He will come back at some point when we get My Heart is a Chainsaw picked. Definitely. Heck yeah. Good facts, Andrew. Thank you. So that is The Only Good Indians by Stephen Graham Jones. Four stars. All right, guys, it's time. I'm kind of nervous. My husband has been planning yeah. this special game for this special episode. Um, yep. Dylan, do you, do you have a game for us? I do. It's called Eschaton of Fun. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> uh, Toby, do you want to give a brief overview of what Eschaton is while I pull this all up? Sure, sure. So Dylan is referring to a game uh, in Infinite Jest called Eschaton. Uh, Eschaton is another word for Armageddon or the end of the world. And in the book, Eschaton is a game that the kids at the tennis academy play. They get together on like four conjoined tennis courts. They draw a gigantic map of the world on the tennis courts. And then kids stand on the countries they represent and wage nuclear war on each other with tennis balls that not only have to strategize how to win nuclear war, but they have to also accurately hit their own tennis ball and strike the country that they want to strike. It's like risk, but with tennis and nuclear weapons. And Model UN. Yes, and Model UN. You're right. (laughs) But since we don't have access to tennis balls or the fact that you guys are hundreds of miles away from each other, Uh we're going to be also using the help Uh of 
other literary genius, Milton Bradley, <laughs> of the game Battleship. <laughs> oh, no. So we're going to be playing oh. a three-way version of Battleship. I have sent uh, everyone a map of the United States that has been divided into a grid of nine sections with the A row up top, B row in the middle, C row at the bottom, each covering a chunk of the United States. I've had them each send me a part of the grid of where they are. And so you're each going to guess a different section and try to kill each other, basically. So we want to be the last one at the end. You want to be the last one standing because you can choose. So, Bailey, you could say, I want to do Toby's uh, C3. Okay. So another part of the strategy is if you guys want to team up and focus on one person, you can. Okay. But but you guys do have one defense that you can use which is your knowledge of native american lands um okay i will give you a native american tribe i would normally give the whole list of native american tribes regarding a city but there's a lot of them and also a lot of the names are now used in the city and the state name and you would try to guess what city in that section is the land acknowledgement from so say for example i shoot b1 as you notice uh california's in there and I'll say your line acknowledgement then is the Tongva, mm-hmm. which is? I don't know. Los Angeles. Okay. <laughs> so if Bailey gets Los Angeles, what that does is that either defends it mm-hmm. if you get it right. However, once that's said, it's off the board. So so as soon as we mm. defend it, they're going to know that that's our spot. Exactly. That's why you have two. So you can t- hypothetically defend one to throw people off the trail. Okay. And also, by the way, the land acknowledgement comes from uh, the Code for Anchorage organization. So go to land.code for Anchorage organization. This is actually really cool. You can type in any city and it gives you the list for the proper land acknowledgement. And you can see what tribes specifically have land acknowledgements for that area. Okay. So I'm getting the information cool. from them and also the nativeland.ca project. So if you go online, it's literally like Google Maps that you can just type in stuff. Okay. Mm-hmm. So Pages, if you're thinking to yourself... This is an incredibly complicated and difficult to understand game that is almost seemingly overcomplicated. It captures the spirit of Eschaton really well in the book. Thank you, Toby. (laughs) And the way I decided the order was I had one section just randomly chosen, and whoever gets it closer, basically I chose it by distance. So, Bailey, you got it closest to there, so you get to start. And it will be Bailey, Andrew, Toby. Okay. Um, I'm going to guess Andrew... Like steak sauce, A1 steak sauce, Andrew. A1 is the Pacific Northwest. Andrew, do you want to use your um, protection? I will not use my protection. And Andrew, is that a hit? It is not a hit. Okay. Andrew, your turn. Mm. I will take Bailey B1. That is uh, the West Coast with Nevada, Utah, and Arizona. Um, I will not... I will not protect it. <laughs> and Bailey, is that a hit? No. Okay. <laughs> you made it look like it was, should be a hit. <laughs> I'm just bringing up the suspense. Okay. Toby. I'm going to go Bailey, B2. I want to use my protection. Okay. Mm. The Pueblo tribe. So I have to give it a city or a state? A city. A city. Ooh, that's tough. Santa Fe. That is correct. Yes, 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 yes. Wow. That's okay. impressive. Yeah. It's a bail. You don't have to say if it was a hit or not, or okay, because you used the land acknowledgement correctly, and now nobody can use the land acknowledgement for B two anymore. Okay. Okay, I get that now. All right. Andrew, why don't you go ahead and bomb B two on your next turn, and then I'll hit somewhere else for Bailey, and we'll it's, get it's her out of here. It's my turn. All right. <laughs> <laughs> um, Toby, I'm gonna go C three. C three is the mm-hmm. Florida Panhandle. C three PO. I will not use my defense. Okay. Is it a hit? That it was not. You did not sink my battleship, mm-hmm. which was Florida. All right, Bailey. I'm gonna shoot for Bailey B two. <laughs> and Bailey's that a hit? Yeah. Rude. Yes. You just got Eschaton. <laughs> hey, Toby. We defeated Bailey. Eschaton. Andrew, I'd like to extend the hand of peace to you and uh, co-win this game. <laughs> There's no co-winners here, Toby. <laughs> oh, no. Come on. Toby, in spirit, we have reached peace. Now let's fight it out just for funsies. <laughs> now let's just see who, who can win. Just like um, Eskaton. I'm going to go Andrew B3. I will not defend. B3 is the mid-Atlantic. Okay. All right. Uh, I will shoot at C2 of Toby. No defense there. I don't care about South Texas or Louisiana. C2 is South Texas and Louisiana. Okay. Okay. 
I'm going to go Andrew A3. I will use my defense. Mm-hmm. I thought you might. That is New England. <laughs> Andrew, Pawtucket Tribe. Uh, that would be um, Providence? That's what I would have guessed too, Andrew. Ooh, close. It's Boston. Oh. Pawtucket as a oh. smaller tribe uh, land. Oh, confusing because Pawtucket, the Paw Sox, the yeah. former affiliate of the uh, <laughs> Boston Red Sox, I believe, are in, are in Pawtucket. Did I sink your <laughs> Pacific right. Northeast? That was not where I am. Oh! oh. Interessante. Okay. Mm. All right. Uh, B3, Toby. Middle No defense from me here. <sighs> I don't remember what I guessed. The, Actually, I, the I, Atlantic, I do. Atlantic okay. Mideast. I'm going to go Andrew C1. That's Alaska and Hawaii? No defense here. Mm. Yep, I, I'm okay. letting Alaska and Hawaii go. <laughs> <laughs> I thought, yeah, okay. I thought maybe, okay. All right. Um, you know what? A1 for Toby. No defense here. What? Where are you? <laughs> I know. I'm kind of losing track of where I've guessed. Uh, I um, think I know where, where has been guessed on you. I'm not sure, though. You, got, you guys have um, almost guessed all of them. So. Dylan, have I guessed Andrew A2 yet? Nope. Okay, Andrew A2. Defense? <laughs> the Potawatomi tribe. I'm guessing this not because I know anything about this, but because of the region. Uh, um, Minneapolis? Is it St. Paul? It's Milwaukee. Oh. Uh, oh, there we go. Toby, well fought. Toby. You've got me. Toby, what, where were you? Do you want to you? know something wild? What? I was A2 as well. <laughs> so, oh no, mutually insured destruction. Yep. Yeah, I know. I just nuked myself. <laughs> wow. And let that be a lesson to you, Pejos, about nuclear war. There are no winners. Well played, gentlemen. Thank you. Awesome. Well, you know what? I was skeptical about that game, but it ended up being pretty fun. So, That's good pretty job, good, Dylan. Dylan. Now, Dylan, after that game, it's time for you to torture us further with choosing books oh, at random from our shelves to read next. It's time for The Choosing. The Choosing. I hope Toby gets a really long book. Yeah. <laughs> Bejos, I'm not going to lie. Every single time we record an episode, I forget that Dylan's going to give me another book. <laughs> Whenever <laughs> he says, now it's, now it's time Aww. for Dylan, I'm like, oh, God, that's right. He's going to give me another book. <laughs> well, Toby, I mean, I don't want to torture you. I mean, you've been locked up inside having to read Infinite Jest for the past month and a half. <sighs> I mean, I think it's time for you to like uh -huh. stretch your legs a little bit and uh, get some fresh air. So maybe uh -huh. you should take a number 41, A Walk in the Woods, Rediscovering America on the Appalachian Trail by Bill Bryson. Ooh. Oh, okay. Yeah, this will be easy breezy. I've read like three or four Bill Bryson books already. Those will be good. This is one that I've read and enjoyed, but it's been like 15 years, so I don't know if it would still <laughs> yeah. hold up in my head. So <laughs> I know, let's I'm see. <laughs> a little worried. All right. Well, and yeah, Bailey, I mean, we're not that mean when it comes to the choosing. I mean, hmm? we're not heartless. Unlike number 77, Our Missing Hearts by Celeste Ng. Oh. Ooh. Andrew just Ooh, gave me book. this book. Yeah, I got this book for Christmas. Okay. Um, this is Celeste Ng's latest book. I have not read Little Fires Everywhere, which is her most loved one. What? I, I've read Everything I Never Told You, um, and I enjoyed it. So I'm looking forward to this one. I think Andrew might have given me a signed copy. We did that. We covered that on the podcast, in fact. Yes. Ooh. Yeah. When I read Bailey, it. Bailey, you're sleeping on uh, Little Fires Everywhere. That's a really good book. I know. I think I saw the trailer and then it influenced, you know, the reading of the book. So I have to like forget about that trailer. Oh, yeah. And I need about another year before I've forgotten. <laughs> okay, okay, great. Good. And Pejos, now you know how long it takes for Bailey to forget something. <laughs> Normal things. Okay, so in two weeks on the podcast, I'll be reading Our Missing Hearts by Celeste Ng, and Andrew is reading The S Snows of Kilimanjaro and Other Stories by Ernest Hemingway. Thanks for listening to the To Read List. If you'd like to get in contact with us, you can email the to read list podcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Goodreads, Instagram, and the Storygraph at the To Read List Podcast. And if you want to help us find more listeners, one great way to do that is uh, to rate us five stars or leave a review on your podcatcher of choice. It helps us find new people. And um, your review does not have to be a thousand and forty seven pages or whatever Infinite Jest was. It can be real short. <laughs> And you know what I want you to do, Pages? I want you to tell all your little buddies at the Tennis Academy about this podcast. You know they read books. You know they're readers. Tell your friends. Tell your friends about this podcast, even if you don't attend an exclusive Tennis Academy, even if you don't play tennis at all. Please tell your friends. Uh, our best advertisement is word of mouth because we can't afford any other advertisement. So please do that. <laughs>
thanks to Toby and Andrew for co-hosting the podcast with me, to Dylan for sound recording, and to Miss Jillian Beth Durkee for composing our intro song. See you in two weeks. Happy reading. Books, books, books. books. books.